Welcome to the Botstaber Austrian American podcast. Happenex designed for the real world because it was a critique of consumerism, designers' role in creating more stuff in a world that didn't need more stuff. It needed stuff that was better for the common good. He's he was all seen in that kind of genre, and I very quickly realized that this did not acknowledge the significance of, of his life as an Austrian emigre and this very crucial Austrian-American relationship and kind of exchange because, you know, Papenak was following the footsteps of other emigres that uh, escaped Austria and created new progressive creative ideas. Our guest today is Dr. Alison Clark. In 2013, Dr. Clark received a bias grant to support her research on Victor Papenek. Her proposal was titled Victor Papenek, Designer for the Real World, which happens to be the same title of her book published this year by MIT Press. Welcome, Alison. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. You have such an interesting background. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Absolutely, yes. Um, I was trained in design history at the Royal College of Art and Victoria and Albert Museum London, which had a very empirical emphasis and very much kind of hands-on using museum objects, really trying to interpret their provenance and understand the cultural, social context of things. And in the course of training in design history and after completing my master's, which looked at actually Tupperware and the, and how technology becomes normalized mm. in everyday culture, I realized I started to become more interested in people's relationship with things. And so that made me start asking questions that moved, kind of segued from historical questions to social science questions. So I my doctorate's actually in social anthropology and material culture. That makes me think that I can see why Victor Papenek might hold a special interest for you, but how did you become interested in Papenek in this course? Yes, Victor Papenek, such a fascinating sort of icon within design culture because he's he's the big rebel that questioned everything about industrial design and style and the elitism of design culture. But the reason I really became interested in him was because partly he really valued anthropology and he was very transdisciplinary in his approach and also I think because Victor Papenak's book Design for the Real World um, was kind of old-fashioned by the time I started studying and it was seen as really over-idealistic clarion call to the masses and designers to change, change the world through changing design but this was seen as really sort of slightly hippie-ish idealistic stuff because we were the kind of hardcore postmodernists um, when I first started studying design history as an undergraduate. And Papenak seemed to belong to this, this other age. And so when I started looking at his work at a later stage, past undergraduate, I actually thought it's really fascinating the way that he really instigated this idea of bringing design and anthropology and social science together. Papenak's book, Design for the Real World, he published it in 1971. It's been translated into 23 languages, and I read that it's considered the most widely cited design book on record. Now you've written the first biography of his life. How will this biography add to the relevance of Papenek's book? I think 
I did become fascinated about how a book that's never fallen out of print in 40 years and is still widely cited by young designers as a kind of manifesto because it critiques wasteful consumer culture, environmental damage, how it's still so prescient. And so I set out to really explore where it fits in contemporary discourse around the environment, about hmm. around sustainability. And I very much hope that my book is not just a traditional biography. I think it had to follow the life of Papanak because actually it became quickly it became quickly very clear to me that I couldn't understand his ideas and the impact of this book without understanding where it fitted into his biography as a as an Austrian emigre and how he arrived in the US. And I very much hope the book kind of elaborates some of those ideas, broadens them out from Austria. We literally, in the book, go from Austria, Papanak's born in 1923 in, in Vienna, to his travel to America in 1939, escaping National Socialist oppression with his, with his mother at a very young age of 15. And then how he translates his even though he was 15, only 15, he really was completely Viennese. And how he translates that thinking, that culture, that Austrian culture into understanding this new world that he enters. And it follows his life and his ideas. And he didn't just publish Design for the Real World, he published um, Nomadic Furniture, Design for Human Scale, The Green Imperative, a whole series of books that had a massive impact. But I think my monograph is really an analysis of where Design for the Real World also fitted into Cold War politics, because hmm. his ideas around design are completely informed by Cold War policy in America around the role of technology and the role of designers in the fight against uh, the Soviet threat. And so I, I found lots of kind of interesting details and contextualizations I really didn't expect to find when I began the project so long ago. Oh, that's great. So uh, you mentioned uh, about uh, he left Austria so young, escaping uh, Nazi-occupied Austria. How did this... Uh, experience affect him as a designer? Did it influence his sense of social responsibility? I think Papanak's sense of social responsibility was completely informed by his experience as a young emigre. He had lost his father in 1935 in Vienna, just before, you know, the the, the, the Kristallnacht and the, the pogroms that he and mm. his mother, who were very vulnerable, would have witnessed firsthand. And then went from being actually a rather bourgeois, uh, rather well-off young man living on the Ringstrasse in the most elite part of the old city of Vienna. And he went from that kind of life to arriving at Ellis Island with nothing, with his mother to look after. He wow. had to protect her as much as she had to look after him. Hmm. That had their business taken away from them. They had nothing. Fortunately, they did have relatives living in Harlem and so they vouched for them and they, they escaped very late in 1930, April 1939. And I think it's not insignificant that Papanak arrives in New York, moves to New York City with his mother at the time of the New York World's Fair. 
And the New York oh. World's Fair was this spectacle of industrial design. Um, it was on, you know, in every newspaper, every magazine. And the New York World's Fair 1939 was really a showcase of what design could do in the modern democratic world. So it escaped this dark, oppressive regime and arrived to a place that sort of exalted design as the way forward. And I think that must be why. It's it's really interesting to, you know, why of any profession would he be, choose to become a designer? That's fascinating to me uh, during that period. And I, I think that's because he also saw a lot of role models around him. He, as a, as a young emigre, he found accommodation in a, a Jewish hostel in the near the East Village. And you imagine this young man had only ever experienced the bourgeois world of the Innenstadt, Vienna. He was unfamiliar with uh, ethnic Jewish culture because he mm. lived in actually a very assimilated environment. And suddenly he's mixing in this incredibly diverse metropolitan environment. And he was fascinated, actually, by popular culture, really fascinated by popular culture. He goes on to really critique popular culture in Design for the Real World. But, you know, this is, this is a world he's never seen before, and he managed to secure a free place at the, the Cooper Union Art School. And I think that was really the making of him, because that's mm. where there was a whole network of other emigre artists, advertisers and architects. And I think that was the way forward for him on one of his early documents when he signs up to join the US Army, he actually describes himself as an artist. So he decides very early on that he's going to be this kind of artistic intellectual figure. And that's what he's, that's what he's really exporting to America from, from Austria. So that leads into my next question, which is what were his connection to other Austrian American immigrants as a young designer? What I think is most fascinating about looking at biography is the importance of not just looking at the hard facts, but how the individual themselves comes to carve out their own life, some of which is imagined, some of which is real, as in you can actually verify it with archival documentation. But what I found fascinating about Papenak, and I think this must be true of many emigres in many different circumstances, is he had to kind of imagine, invent some of those networks as much as actually realize them. Hmm. So. He, for example, Raymond Lowy, who is like the king, the greatest entrepreneur of industrial design in post-war America, is his father, he's not generally understood as an as a emigre, certainly not first generation, but his father was Jewish Viennese. And Papenak really was kind of heavily influenced by Raymond Lowy for a start. He claimed to have worked in his office uh, on Fifth, Fifth Avenue. There's no archival evidence that backs that up. He could have, <sighs> for sure. But more important, Raymond Lowe was a figure that he could admire as being in the press, being, you know, fated as this great figure that had turned around the depression economy of America by creating greater sales. But he quickly started pitting himself against Raymond Lowe and saying that whereas Raymond Lowe was selling more stuff, what Papenat was going to do was to be an entrepreneur of social design that included people that wasn't just going to sell stuff. And I think that's really interesting that he kind of took this figure and emigre figure and kind of inverted him as a role model in a way. But there were other very important emigre figures that influenced him, like uh, Victor Grun, who was widely acknowledged to be the inventor of the American shopping mall. 
mm-hmm. and shopping centres across the world. And Victor Grun was also an emigre who was very much sidelined within the architectural profession in America and so started working commercially. And because he was excluded from the kind of the inner circle of architects, gentlemen architects in America, because he was Jewish, a Jewish emigre. Uh. And so Grun really became this enormous success. And, you know, there's no doubt he was an influence on Papanak. But there was, you know, the list is pretty endless, actually, from sort of Frederick Kiesler, who Papanak always wrote about working with in the in the um in setting up exhibitions frederick kiesler's another viennese emigre and of course importantly people like richard neutra and rudolf schindler and many austrian emigre figures had had a very strong relationship with frank lloyd wright the you know archetypal american architect by becoming fellows and apprentice with him. And in the 1940s, Papanak became an apprentice to Frank Lloyd Wright too, following in those emigre footsteps. So that whole network was really, really important. Now, the the mystery about his apprenticeship with Frank Lloyd Wright, which Papanak talked about his entire life, is that there isn't any archival information to back that up, not solid (laughs) archival information, but he did receive correspondence from Frank Lloyd Wright. And... I think that's quite interesting because he gave talks later in his life in Vienna referencing his time with Frank Lloyd Wright, but never giving a specific date. And I think this is when we come to the kind of grey area. It was really important to Papanak in order to secure a livelihood. He had no connections. He had nothing when he arrived in, in New York. How do you create, how do you create that for yourself from nothing? And so I think you know, some of it perhaps is slightly fabricated or embroidered or exaggerated. I'm pretty sure that's typical of a lot of resumes. But in this period, you could kind of reinvent yourself. And so what I liked about writing this biography was it didn't matter to me whether something was entirely substantiated by archival evidence. It was still as relevant because that's how Papanak constructed his biography in the course of his life, and it, these different emigre relationships underpinned, you know, his his kind of theoretical discourse. He was designing his own life. I think he was absolutely designing his own life, and he needed to because he. How else would he get access and? two different professions of which he had no prior training for. Uh, And also he had a mother to support. I think she very much supported Helene Papanak, very much supported him. But I think the mother, uh, I mean, this is kind of a Freudian cliche coming coming from Vienna, but I think the mother-son relationship was really, really significant to him because she obviously supported him throughout his life, actually, until the mid-60s when she when she passed away. She retained his Viennese, his Viennese uh, kind of sense of self as well. She cooked Viennese food. And she when he his career ended up taking him kind of across America, he moved from New York to Los Angeles and and everywhere in between, actually. In the end, he was in the Midwest of, of America. But she traveled with him on every new post, academic post he he got. Mm. And she she was a constant reminder. Uh, she didn't speak 
uh, fluent English. And she was a constant reminder of his background and his Viennese roots. And I think that's quite a fascinating aspect. M many biographies of great sort of designers and architects, they tend to not acknowledge the people that are supporting them or the relationships around them. I would love to know more about Papanek's mother and their uh, relationship. Um, you mentioned that Papanek had to support her. That makes me very curious as to what the relationship was like. And mm -hmm. um, I actually did come across this um, really lovely um, illustration of of um, uh, they almost look like Japanese kind of clogs that oh, he yeah. made for her. Uh, and it seemed she must oh, have yeah. been short. They were to give her height so she could reach cabinets. So I wondered about her. I think Papanak's mother was really significant to him as a design inspiration. And he quoted the design project that he carried out for her as a person of short stature as mm. the kind of beginning, the light bulb moment when he really decided he wanted to be a social designer and set up his first mm -hmm. design studio called Design Clinic to kind of heal the problems of the world. And this project was to create for his mother, based on Japanese getter sandals, stacked shoes of varying heights so that she could actually reach the upper cupboards in a fitted kitchen. And he purportedly took this design that was based on his mother, who was very petite, to Raymond Lowy, the great hero of industrial design. And Lowy laughed at him out loud and mocked him and said, what kind of ridiculous idea is this? And for whether or not that, that little vignette, whether it has any basis in truth or not, I think it's highly significant because Papanak puts his mother, with whom he uh, resided in New York or had this very close relationship really for his entire life and until her death in the 1960s, he puts her center stage in his design thinking that when he was thinking about social inclusivity, he was really thinking about how to care for his mother. Mm. And I think that he's an only child and they were both, you know, not protected by really anyone else. Um, when they left Vienna, the two of them trying, struggling with a business on Amhof, a delicatessen business that was probably defined by the Nazis as being Jewish. And so when they escaped in 1939, it would just be the two of them and what the, the few possessions they could carry in a suitcase. So that binding relationship with his mother persisted throughout his marriages, his uh, various marriages. And she also was involved in childcare, looking after Papanak's children at various points in his life. And she even took on domestic jobs herself as a housekeeper to other households in order to supplement his income when he was financially unstable. So this Viennese mother-son relationship was, ex was crucial really to his whole story. Hmm. In terms of your research proposal for bias, your thesis was that existing scholarship neglected Papanek's Austrian theoretical tradition and had subsumed him under broader American ethical, consumer, and ecological movements. What did your research find, and does your book address this? Yes, I think when I really began the research, I was slightly frustrated by 
the fact that when Papanak was written about, he was written about in terms of US consumer campaigning and corporate anti-corporate discourse, like figures such as Ralph Nader, who'd written a book, very famous book in 1965, Unsafe at Any Speed, which was a critique of the US automobile industry. And also popular figures such, such as Vance Packard, who's a best-selling author. He wrote The Wastemakers and The Hidden Persuaders. Hidden Persuaders was a critique of the advertising industry and the kind of and, and inbuilt obsolescence of products, that things were made to last a very short time, so advertisers could just sell more and more. And The Wastemakers, a similar critique. And Papanak's design for the real world, because it was a critique of consumerism, designer's role in creating more stuff in a world that didn't need more stuff, it needed stuff that was better for the common good. He's, he was always seen in that kind of genre. And I very quickly realized that this did not acknowledge the significance of, of his life as a Austrian emigre and this very crucial Austrian-American relationship and kind of exchange. Because, you know, Papanak was following the footsteps of other emigres that uh, escaped Austria and created new progressive creative ideas. And I think Papanak's ideas were also very much founded on, you know, although he escaped the oppressive regime of uh, National Socialism, prior to that, he was actually raised during the period of Red, Red Vienna. Now, he was so young, I mean, he was five years old when the the, the new socialist infrastructure of Vienna was, was built that, you know, had a proliferation of social amenities, social housing, kindergartens, health service, this incredibly optimistic post-Habsburg Vienna that was incredibly intellectually progressive and socially progressive. He was only five years old, you know, age kind of five to 11 when Red Vienna was really operating. But I think that whole drive to the, so you know, design and environmental design and architecture for the better good, there's no mm. way that can't have influenced him. Certainly in his library, and one of the great things about Papanak is his cross-disciplinary reading from anthropology to architectural history to psychology. And Red Vienna is a really significant part of his personal library. So it seems that even if he wasn't entirely conscious of it because he was a child hmm. when he was living in Vienna during the period of the, of the socialist prominence of environmental design, etc., that it certainly he was aware of it later on intellectually and how it informed his thinking. And I also think he did draw on sort of Jewish German emigres such as Adorno and Horkheimer who very prominently critiqued uh, as emigres living in America started to critique the superficiality uh, of a lot and false consciousness of popular culture and that you know maybe people's real political endeavors were being swept away by their obsession with consuming trivialities mm. they definitely influenced him but Papanak was much more practical. In fact, I would say his pra pragmatism is, you know, without being too crude about it, is kind of the American part of him because he wanted proper solutions. He, if, if, uh, if there, you know, if there was a lack of water supply in a South African village, he wanted a solution to it, not an academic or theoretical critique, but an actual practical solution. And when 
Papanak's book, Design for the Real World, which is published first in Swedish, not English, because mm. the Scandinavians absolutely embraced his thinking. Huh. It then becomes translated into English and published uh, by an American publisher. A lot of Europeans, uh, the Italians and the French, really critiqued uh, Papanak for being overly pragmatic, that he wasn't intellectual enough, that he wasn't political enough. So I think that's quite interesting that he was, on the one hand, taking on the mantle of the European intellectual progressive, but on the other, he kind of melded that with a sort of American pragmatism. And it seems to me it's no coincidence that he became really, really popular in the Nordic region and Scandinavia because his ideas were about social inclusivity. And those particular regions obviously had very good welfare state structures that used to design to deliver social housing and you know, fantastic hospitals and, and health equipment, et cetera, to, to their populations. And Papanak was, the design for the real world book was full of examples of good design that ca came from Scandinavia, in fact. Very few of the examples he uses are from the US, except when they're his students' work. Uh, that might be things like creating um, contraceptive packaging for illiterate populations, so that they could you could actually kind of, you know, how do how do women, who, illiterate women, actually read instructions? These are really really quite cutting edge projects at the time and right he he was engaging in this kind of thing really from the early 1960s onwards in his travels during the cold war was papanek aware that he may have played a political role perhaps very political i, I think that's a great question because i i think what's great about writing biography is just these inherent contradictions it's you know it's really not uh whether someone's good or bad, or it's the contradictions of every, everyone's lives. And while he was giving talks in 1968 about the horrors of the Vietnam War in Finland to this avid, radical youth audience, he was also doing visiting lectures for Dow Chemicals in America, who were creating Agent Orange herbicide. Oh. And so there were some extraordinary contradictions. So was he fully aware of the political role? I think, like all designers during the Cold War period, they, you know, they were stuck in between these two cultures. I, I would say Papanak, he, when he was employed at North Carolina State University and then later Purdue, much of the funding was obviously coming from the US military and Cold War funding. So their students had to, you know, this was, they were major recipients of, the, of, this, of this funding in order to explore many objects that on the surface look like humanitarian objects, like inflatable camping shelters that could be used to shelter refugees in a crisis, but they could easily be appropriated for military use. And so it's at this point, you know, these objects are really highly politicized objects and designs because it's never clear, are they socially inclusive humanitarian objects or are they actually designed with military funding to further US 
Cold War expansionism. But I think what's important is to acknowledge those contradictions, because one of the frustrations about this very simplistic understanding of Papanak as this kind of eco-hero is that that's the point of history, is it's our role as historians to complexify these stories. Papanak was neither a hero nor a villain. He was a designer of his time, and he, he had to kind of navigate those contradictory politics. One of the most interesting people that I interviewed in the course of my research was an, another um, US citizen called Howard Smith, who was based and still is based in Finland. And he's an African-American. He'd met Papanak in the 60s when he was doing lots of talks with Buckminster Fuller. And Howard Smith himself, as an African-American artist, had received a grant kind of from nowhere, from the Fulbright Institution, to sponsor him to go to Finland. And he only realised decades later that this was obviously part of a Cold War enterprise because the, the soft diplomacy wanted to make visible that there were actually black practicing artists in America and they wanted to make sure that obviously radical students of this region realized that uh, African-Americans were an important part of the, uh, that's kind of, how can we put it? Yeah, to try and counter the negative feedback from racial segregation in a very obvious way. So I, I think how designers were used in that, and, he, and Howard Smith became this incredibly important Finnish designer, creating lots and lots of textile designs and working for all the big Finnish companies. And, you know, unlike Papanak, he stayed in Finland. So it's a really interesting story, I think, about how how politics segues so very strongly with 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 these designers, that they're not just working in isolation, they're not just great creators, but they belong to this whole network of of other political interconnections. Oh, wow. Um, Did you find anything um, in all your research that suggested how um, Papanek, that he acknowledged these contradictions? Mm. Did Papanak acknowledge these contradictions in his work? Well, the interesting thing about Papanak is that his life spans basically the 20th century history of design. And so it has to be full of contradictions. He begins by being in some ways understood as coming from this modernist legacy of Europe, you know, that he must be a rational modernist designer like his forebear. It's like... Schindler or Neutra, that he comes with this weight of expectation about being a modernist designer, and he rebels against notions of the Bauhaus and rationalist design. So there's already a kind of contradiction there about what's assumed, what will be assumed about about his practice and ideologies. But then later on, I think he kind of toos and froes between. There's a lot of toing and froing between. Yeah, being practical. Uh, is is it? Is it practical to talk to corporations? You're critiquing corporations, but at the same time, maybe it's useful to go and talk to them and give them design anthropological lectures to hmm. to to enhance their thinking or their attitude towards inclusive design. I'm not sure he did fully acknowledge those contradictions in his lifetime, if I'm honest. 
perhaps that's the nature of biography. I'm not sure <laughs> many of us have the luxury to stand back and really think in that, you know, that whole swathe of time, how many contradictions there were. But and also what really strikes you is this is in the in the pre-internet age, there's no way anyone can really discover these contradictions. He can hmm. live essentially a life where he's giving a talk about anti-Vietnam War talk on one side of the world and be lecturing about bioengineering to a corporation at the other in America. So yeah, but for me, that was the most fascinating part of looking at the bi biography because it's using biography to unpick these contradictions of this period and design at this period. When you think about your work on Papanek, his contribution to social design, what do you think is a benefit or significance of looking at the transatlantic dialogue? I think the dialogue between the US and Austria is absolutely vital because they were two very different design cultures. And I think Papanak's work has an enormous leg legacy. It's still read really widely across architecture and design. His ideas have an enormous impact on design pedagogy today. The, whole, the, the notion of social design, a lot of people working in design culture think that social design is a relatively new concept, but it's highly dependent on Papanak's ideas and this relationship between an Austrian intellectual culture and socially inclusive design culture of the Red Vienna and the corporate culture and criticizing, critiquing, casting a new lens on the role of corporate commercial design. It's absolutely crucial. But I think what's really important is, is that there's a lot of uh, kind of well-trodden understandings of the Austrian transatlantic relationship in terms of emigres. And I hope with this book that it, it actually argues the case that that relationship isn't just about the uh, exchange between Austria and the US, but actually it spreads out much further. In this case, across the whole of Europe, this, this discourse. It's, it's, it's an Austrian-American discourse at the beginning but it quickly becomes one that has a massive impact on Danish, Norwegian, French. The, the, his book, as I mentioned earlier, was is translated into 23 different languages. There's just been a new Catalonian edition. There's a Mandarin edition. In Chinese culture, Papanap is an extraordinarily popular uh, figure oh. in the 21st century. To me, that's fascinating because... Their issues of overexpansion, pollution, consumerism, they are they're new issues that were, you know, obviously pertinent for Papanak in the 60s and 70s. So China is desperate to look for alternative design models that aren't about just stoking the desires of the consuming public that are actually for the bet the, the common good and environmental good. And so his book and his ideas still have enormous value. I just think it's very important to have that historical contextualization to understand that obviously every cultural art artifact and output is informed by the politics of its time and to get away from this idea of designers as heroes. And that's why I also think it was important to put personal detail, personal biographic detail in, in 
the, the monograph, because I do think it's relevant that when he arrived as a rather bourgeois Viennese young man in the hurly-burly of, of ethnically mixed downtown New York, he had no idea of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity, and he only really became aware of that ethnicity when he married a marriage of convenience, I can only assume, uh, a very traditional Brooklyn uh, Jewish girl. And he, again, he had to reinvent his identity. That's, he never spoke about this marriage. He, he had, in fact, he then married an, another Jewish girl and the other marriage was dissolved. It's not clear under what circumstances. So I think these personal details are not inconsequential because they're about someone trying to kind of circumnavigate a new culture and create something from it in a positive, progressive way. But it was never simple and it was never a linear in a way that it probably would be for a, a you know a US citizen, a straight US citizen wouldn't have to try to navigate these questions of identity or place or belonging. And I think that is true of many emigre experiences, not just the Jewish-Austrian uh, emigre experience, of the kind of creativity that can arise from that struggle, but it's not always a happy ending. I think for Papanak it was. Um, towards the end of his life, he was definitely disappointed that his ideas had fallen out of fashion. By the time his last book, uh, The Green Imperative, was published, he was described by one critic as a cult figure when green design was a thing. And that was kind of 20 years ago. That seems absurd now when green design is so crucially important. It's a bit of a cliche, but Papanak was actually a, a person before his time in that respect. And... I think what's fascinating is how he pulled together all these different intellectual influences and brought them to bear uh, on a design culture that was very pragmatic because American design culture is much more pragmatic and much more intellectualized and theorized than European design culture, without a doubt. And so I think that was probably his strength is, is yeah, bringing those two worlds together. And I very much hope that the book is opening up those questions about the role of designers in the period of decolonization, because Papanak was one of, he used terminology such as developing world, third world, that we certainly wouldn't use now. But he was, he lived long enough to be able to also problematize those terms and think about what they really meant. Were they those the right kind of descriptions of first and third world? Were that you know, how, how did that what, did, what implications did those kind of constructs have? He did kind of query himself and those kind of contradictions, but he tried to, tried to create with people of those actual communities in the global South, design solutions that served their user groups. They weren't just top-down uh, top solutions. Uh, one of the most fascinating designs he made in the 1960s was a, a television for the global South that could be assembled from low-tech materials of those particular communities. And so we might look at that and think, what earth would you be doing proposing to create a TV for the global south? These are, you know, in communities that probably didn't have access to sanitation or water. But his vision was that 
you know, why should the parts of the globe be excluded from access to media? This was during the media, the media revolution. And one of his, he worked with Marshall McLuhan, the great media theorist of the period. And he had this vision where everyone should have access to information and it shouldn't just be a kind of top-down idea that the West shows the global South what to do. Actually, it should be there should be the opportunities given to be sort of self-facilitating those kind of designs. So I think that's really fascinating because they're exactly the same problems we have now. Is how do you design in an appropriate way for the user group? You know, what his question was, mm. what is normal? Actually, there is, you know, who's normal? We, we should be designing around the periphery, what we consider to be the periphery, to bring that into the centre of our thinking rather than just designing consumer goods for the people in the middle that are affluent, that are, you know, have a certain level of education. And I think, interestingly, something that doesn't... He definitely kind of got the ball rolling in terms of designing... For aging, for example, this is a massive area now with a you know globally aging population of of thinking of aging not as a problem, a physical problem, but thinking of aging as a as a cultural phenomenon, We're, you know, and that people aren't just problems to be solved, but actually we need to understand them culturally. It's not you're not just creating functional health objects you're creating cultural objects that have a meaning for users that make them feel more included that don't just make them feel included make them more included full stop and these kind of genres of design i think are so pertinent today they're the growth areas of design you know our world is saturated with consumer goods we really don't need any more and i love one great thing that papanak did throughout his life was collect absurd designs like uh, diapers for parakeets that was one of his favorite ones or a washing machine for humans that was created in japan in the 70s where you could actually get in a washing machine and he was horrified to find out from the company that created uh, parakeet diapers that they sold something like 200,000 a month or something, some ridiculous figure. And he kind of loved these vignettes because they are about the absurdity of design. You know, what on earth are designers doing? The world is full of extraordinary uh, inequality and, and designers are spending their time creating diapers for parakeets. You know, what kind of world are we living in? And I, I think that sort of uh, Papanakian thinking is still so important. You know, the notion of over-design, you know, do we really need a refrigerator with more gadgets to it? You know, when, you know, what actually we need are, are, are objects that solve everyday problems or fit into our worlds in much more benign ways. So I think that relevance is so important, yes, to, to present day as as you know what i think what's striking is his book that was first written in actually 1969 talked about as being the the hands of the clock being one minute before midnight before the basically the world is over we'll have used up all its resources and that was in 69 and look where we are now mm. and so design for the real world is such a pertinent read it's it's re, you know it's polemic some of it's slightly bonkers 
as we say in English. <laughs> but uh, that's what makes it so charming. And I think that's why it had such a relevance to design students, because design students really question about what they're doing in 21st century. Uh, you know, they want to be doing something useful. They don't want to be designing more uh, schlocky stuff and uh, knickknacks. They really want to be doing something that's pertinent and useful and has longevity and helps society. So although it's written nearly half a century ago, Design for the Real World and Papanek's idea still have so much salience. Alison, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. I can't wait to read your book. Thank you so much for being with us today. The Botstuber Institute of Austrian American Studies is honored to have supported Alison Clark's project, Victor Papanek, Designer for the Real World. And I would like to say uh, thank you to the to Botstuber for for supporting this research because it really could not have happened. The book would not be here without your support. So thank you. This podcast was produced by Dr. Alison Clark, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks for listening. The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.